and welcome to today's Born Human podcast. Thank you as ever for joining us today. It is my privilege to introduce to you today Mr. Murray Hambro. Murray is somebody I've come to know through a friend of mine who served in the army with him and I think it's fair to say he's somebody who's been through more adversity than most. Murray served in the Royal Tank Regiment and became a double amputee as a result of his time there and since then had the tragic loss of his two-year-old son to a mitochondrial disease. This isn't an easy subject to discuss and I think I can be really honest when I say that it wasn't the easiest of interviews to conduct but Murray faced it with honesty and with bravery and courage really and I think that makes it possible for us to have these kind of conversations so I'm immensely grateful for his time and his honesty in sharing this and I hope for those of you who may be going through something similar this may offer some solace so without further ado here is Murray's story Welcome to today's Born Human podcast. Today I'm privileged to introduce a man who I know through a very good friend of mine, um, Mr. Murray Hambro. Welcome, Murray, to today's podcast. Thank you for coming on. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, So Murray is someone who spent time in the army with a very good friend of mine and, um, as he describes it, had a bad day in 2010. and over the years, I think it's fair to say he's had a fair amount of adversity to come across and has dealt with incredibly well. And so when we're thinking about this podcast and thinking about what we're trying to face in parenthood, we all come across adversity at times. And I think it's good to learn from how people cope with things, some of the most, some of the easy things, but also some of the really difficult things we might face. And so I'm grateful to have Murray on today to be able to talk about his journey in parenthood and also his journey in life before that a little bit because that's relevant to kind of some of the adversity he's faced. So thanks for coming on. Um, tell, tell me a little bit, if that's all right, Murray, about your family and kind of what your family dynamic looks like. Right? Yeah, yeah. So um, born and raised in Sussex, um, I was brought up on a council estate so as usual um tear away kind of thug life and all that sort of stuff yeah. um it was very stereotypical um I had a dad that was a depressed alcoholic my parents got divorced and then my mum just was never home so between me my brother uh, my sister got pregnant early on so this is what I mean it's very stereotypical yeah But my sister got pregnant early on, so she moved out by the time she was, what, 18, 19. So it's just kind of me and my brother to defend ourselves. And this was like my last year or two at school. So needless to say, my attendance at school was lacking, um, though I had a very good excuse and I was very good at my parents' signatures. So um, (laughs) I kind of got away with quite a lot. Resourceful. Yeah, but then it kind of, it made me learn quite quickly. So... um, Firstly, cooking. Uh, if I if I wanted to eat, I had to learn how to cook, and then just you know, um, my ha- my house was kind of the uh, the hostel on the estate because you know everyone would pile in around mine, um, mm-hmm. and through various other reasons, I was well known within the uh, police and all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, it was my time doing that. Um, 
like I say, I was I was a bit of a tearaway scallywag, whatever you want to call them. Um, I used to do running marijuana and God knows what. So um, it was that life that I needed to get away from because uh, I actually had someone put a gun against my head for thirty quid, and uh, it was that I had that flashbang moment. Not yeah. from not from the gun, yeah. But it was that it was like I need to get away from this life, yeah. So I was either going to end up in prison, or you know, six foot under, God forbid, yeah. And uh, I remember I always said my granddad was in the army, and he used to tell me his stories and that from the uh, his days back in the war. And uh, I always kind of said I, I want to be a soldier. I've always wanted to be a soldier, and so um, it was at that point that day was my turning point. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. So yeah. I went to the careers office, signed myself up. Um, academically, obviously I didn't attend school very much, so my, my, GCSEs, my GCEs weren't that great. <laughs> and um, But I did really well in the barb test. So they were like, you could be a field, sur- field surgeon, a Apache helicopter pilot or whatever what GCSEs have you got? I was like, I haven't. Yeah. They're like, well, okay, infantry for you then. But then they showed me the video of the tanks rolling across the tundra and the prairies and all that lot. So I was like, well, that's a bit of me, that is. And um, yeah, I enlisted, joined up in the uh, Royal Tank Regiment. Yeah. So um, I signed up when I was, well, uh, how old was I? 22. I was a bit of a late starter. Yeah. But I think that did me a huge favour because... Um, I experienced a lot beforehand that I knew the army was the direction I wanted to go in. Whereas a lot of guys as school leavers, um, they join the army, they haven't experienced life. They kind of see the dream of joining the army. And then by the time they're 18, they catch sniff of a girlfriend and then they're like, that's it. I'm off. I'm signing off, getting out. And everything goes belly up for them out in Civvy street. So, um, yeah, that's that's when I signed up. Um, served just shy of twelve years in yeah. the army, um, but yeah, I had a a bad day back in two thousand and ten, ninth of yeah. December two thousand and ten. Um, I was on operations, my second tour out in Afghan, and um, my vehicle hit a pressure plate IED. Um, it was. Uh, it was a crazy old day. Uh, I mean, we was delivering sandbags and parcels, and that's what I got blown up for sandbags. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't even glorify it and say it was like I'm going to get a VC or anything like that. But um, we was doing um, supply runs to the Paras. They took over a, a compound that they couldn't get defence stores down. They were taking loads of casualties and stuff like that. So that's when they asked the the Warthog Group, which is what we was on. Yeah to go down there and do it so we the first day we was going down past this river but we said like the the river banks were going to collapse there was going to be a warthog going going in the water and someone drown or whatever so we had to find a different route and the second day um i was for some silly reason i was always asked to be always asked to be the lead call sign yeah um I considered it as a privilege because obviously I was trusted to get to where we needed to go. Yeah. Um, that meaning you led the charge effectively in terms of you were the front yeah, vehicle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
we was driving along and then I saw this guy who was ploughing his field and I was like, if he's stupid enough to plough the field, I'm stupid enough to drive through it. Yeah. But um, yeah, so we, we got the stores down. I think it was, we did about four runs throughout the day. So back and forth, there was about eight vehicles. So you do the maths. Yeah. On the last run of the day, the, the Taliban um, crawled along an irrigation ditch and then connected up a battery pack to their pressure plate, IED. Right. And then just as I was thinking of my pie and chips going back in towards camp, yeah. uh, my vehicle detonated the IED. I got sent 40 feet up in the air and, uh, well, my vehicle got sent about 10 foot in the air and then I carried on going another 40 foot. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, your, your, our mutual friend, Big Nick, <laughs> was in the vehicle behind and as he's coming up to me, because um, he was the first, he was one of the first guys out of the ambulance and he comes, he's coming up to me, he's like, oh, Murray, Murray, stay still, stay still. I was like, bloody hell, Nick, what happened? He's been, yeah. he's, you've been blown up, mate. It's a bloody big one. I was, thinking, I was thinking, oh, crap. And he's like, there going, you should have seen your face. I was like, sorry, mate, I forgot to give it the thumbs up as I'm going, <laughs> salute as I'm going through the air. <laughs> so it's a surreal day. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so. It's kind of a bit of a blur, but like, as in, in terms of like not knowing what had happened kind of thing, I imagine. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of remember. I think I remember quite a lot. But then as soon as Nick got to me, the medic got to me afterwards and then everyone's just stabbing me with all sorts of crazy drugs and that. So what I think I remember to what I actually remember could have been two different things. I mean, there was, I swear there was a leprechaun next to me. But but no, I mean, the, the way the army works, I mean, they've got... Unfortunately, there's a very slick routine for getting people Kazivaks back to back Camp Bastion and then back to the UK. Yeah. Um, within, I think, 24 hours, I was I was on a plane flying back to the UK. Yeah. Um, you know, there's very uh, various other bits that happened between that, but I don't think it's for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so when I got back to the UK, they'd done the X-rays. Um, they told me I've got severe fractures to the feet. Yeah. So I was thinking six weeks in a cast, crutches, and I'll be good to go again. Uh, yeah. No, you you don't understand. It's it's severe fractures. You've my right foot was just shards of bone. Yeah. They couldn't reconstruct any of the foot, and then my left foot um, there's a massive chunk of my shin missing, the heel and part of my ankle. Right. So they could have reconstructed it, but they said the end result would have been just having numerous surgeries, um, potentially ended up with just a fused ankle yeah. or just in pain and then having it taken off anyway. Yeah. But um, if you tend to leave something for a long period of time, you have phantom pain afterwards because right. the brain's used to having that pain all the time. Okay. So um, my wife or my fiance at the time was um next to me and the surgeon's asking me like you know how many feet do you want to take off one or two and I'm asking him if I can keep them I mean this is the mind frame that I was in I was asking him if I could keep them so I can put them in a pickle jar to scare kids at Halloween (laughs) so I looked at my missus and I was like look you're gonna have to ask the sensible questions because 
I haven't got it in me. I'm, yeah. I'm on a lot of drugs. I'm not made that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, she she was asking, you know, for way of life, um, recovery and all that sort of stuff. You know, good questions, normal questions. Yeah. And the surgeon said, well, I, I recommend that you have both feet off um, because it's just healing time. Prosthetics these days are... Um, amazing yeah. and you'll be up and walking in no time at all so that's when yeah, yeah we, we made the decision to have both feet amputated yeah and um yeah that was kind of the start the start of uh me starting to realize who i was as a person yeah so um yeah i had to come to get to grips with that i spent um a couple of weeks in hospital uh it was about a week to a week in intensive care yeah and then another three or four weeks in the hospital before i was released and then you know wheelchair bound waiting to find out um about going to headley court the rehabilitation center yeah and then getting my prosthetics taking my first steps again starting to walk and everything else yeah yeah did you find at that point that it's sort of like because I guess it feels like that, you know that that's all quite it's a massive whirlwind in terms of like from the moment it happened to kind of like very quickly afterwards you've got lots of things happening that keeping your brain busy around you've got to make decisions things have got you're getting lots of information you're on a lot of drugs then I suppose was there like that come down of like okay well that's the reality of it now what do I do with that do you know what I mean did it start to sort of sink in presumably at that point about what the what the future would look like and did it how did, how was that in terms of thinking about the future as such? I don't think it was necessarily that point it was sinking in. Um I I always use humour. Yeah. I, I like to think I'm a funny guy. Most people would like beg to differ and just say <laughs> you're an idiot, but you know, for me I think I'm funny. Yeah. So my whole time in hospital I was a bit of a clown, I was joking around, you know, the there was one nurse, she came in, made herself known to me and, you know, she was pleasing on the eye. If she, if she had the right nurse's outfit, it would have been great. <laughs> but then my, my first introduction was, I've just filled up a bed, it's my first crap I've had in like God knows how many days. And I filled up this bedpan and I was a little bit, a little bit worried. And my first impression was her rolling me over. <laughs> the overflow of the bedpan, it was stuck to my... <laughs> stuck to my bum and that and it was just like hi I'm Murray please to meet you sort of thing so um and it was just these kind of experiences that I kind of um kept using so like the there was um, a morphine button that I could press every time I was in pain but it logs every time it's been pressed so if you press it more than three times you're not managing your pain yeah and I'm pressing it like 20 times just to wind up the nurse because she's like, don't press it that many times yeah. because I'm going to get in trouble that I'm not managing your pain. I'm like, sorry, what? Sorry, yeah, what? Yeah. As I'm clicking, clicking, clicking. <laughs> Little did I know, I just administered like 20 jets and more <laughs> to myself. So, uh, and it's no wonder you can't make a decision. <laughs> I slept well for the rest of the day. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, none of that. It wasn't, I don't think it was necessarily that point. Um, for me, I... I got to Headley Court. I took my first steps. Um, it was an emotional day. Um, took a picture of me taking my first steps, sent it to all my family, and everyone's yeah. ringing me up afterwards saying, oh, that made me cry and everything. And again, that wasn't the realisation for me. Um, 
it was once I was starting to walk um, I kind of came to the end of my spell at Headley Court and then I was at home for like seven weeks at a time so I'd do seven weeks at home a couple of weeks at Headley Court seven weeks at home yeah and it was that time at home when I was sat in front of the TV watching Jeremy Kyle drinking tea eating biscuits just thinking my life is as bad as these idiots on TV yeah yeah and uh, I think that was when it kind of the realisation set in because I had a um, a rehab officer a military guy yeah. who was sort of checking up on me all the time and I wanted to stay in the army because I was like oh the, the blood is green that courses through these veins and all this sort of stuff yeah. and I didn't want to be discharged so I said like whatever I needed to do I'll do it I want to stay in the army I don't care if I have a desk job I'll go to um, an army training regiment it doesn't matter what it is I, yeah. I want to stay in and this guy just shot me down straight away. He's like, no, you're getting discharged, mate. You're out. You're no good to the army anymore. Yeah. Um, we don't, effectively, we don't want you anymore. Yeah. So that was the worst thing for me was like most people when they leave the army, it's on their terms. Mm. So they'll know how bad the army is, how rubbish it is, you know, but they have that closure. So I never had that closure. So I was quite bitter towards... Um, my regiment because they didn't help me out at all yeah um the rehab guy like i say just shot me down the 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 army my regiment welfare officer was sat next to this guy as he's telling me my career was over and he didn't even like console me he's like you know the regiment's there for your brother or whatever he was just staring at the floor and i was like you know me and me and my fiance or my wife sorry she I was just, she could see that I was getting upset and annoyed. Mm. And uh, in the end, it was just getting these guys out of the house. I didn't want to be around them anymore. Yeah. And then um, everyone's telling me, like, there's this massive pot of money. Um, what do you want to do when you get out of the army? And, you know, what are you going to retrade as? And I was like, well, I don't want to get out of the army. So uh, I don't really want to retrade. Yeah. So I was in limbo for a good few months. Yeah. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um and I think that was that was my first point when I was at my lowest. Yeah. Um because, you know, the the missus was away at work. I was just at home. And yeah. when you get inside your, your own headspace, um I'd nowhere to go, I had nothing to do. I was just at home twiddling my thumbs. So that's that I think that's when I kind of I didn't have depression but I had anxiety yeah so I um like I wake up in the night having my heart racing and just cold sweats and everything and I'm trying to talk myself I never believed it was anxiety I always thought I was having a heart attack or something yeah so I'd ring up the doctor saying oh, it's no good I'm having a heart attack I'm heading down to A&E <laughs> and stuff like that and um yeah it was it was when um I went because I had other medical issues still going on yeah um i went to see a consultant about um my memory because i was having short-term memory problems yeah and um he just turned around he goes have you ever considered anxiety and uh i was like what do you mean he goes well because it can contribute to short-term memory issues 
because your 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 mind is fixed on one thing. Yeah. So um, where I would um, struggle with breathing, um, I'd feel panicky. I'd get sweaty. Um, like I say, I'd have heart palpitations. Yeah. I never believed anxiety could have that effect. Yeah. And um, it was only when I started to to look into it and research it that then I believed what this this consultant said because he he gave me uh, an MRI and basically said look you're you're fine yeah um, a lot of people were saying I was getting that a lot everyone was telling me I was fine there's nothing wrong with me so I was thinking whether they it must have been something else yeah but yeah I I went to the doctors I had um, echocardiograms you know I just didn't believe. Because I've always said that um, depression was kind of like a weakness. Yeah. Because all throughout your army career, back in the early days when before mental health was actually a thing. Yeah. It was always said that um, it was seen to be weak if mentally you wasn't strong enough. You was a weak person. Yeah. And I believed in it myself. Because again, it was just drummed into you. That's you what got, you were told. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, you know, if if you're crying on a battlefield, that's it. You know, you're no good to anyone. You're just weak or whatever. So, that's that's why I refused to believe I was that person. Yeah, yeah. So it had to be something physical. Yeah. It was never. It was never my mind. It was never what my head was doing. Yeah. It was just you know it must have been something to do with being blown up. Yeah. Um, it's had a knock on effect because. The injury list that I had, um, I broke part of my sp- um, the cranial part of the spine, so right up the top, just underneath the skull. Yeah, I had fractures up there. So then I was thinking, like, well, maybe it's got to be something to do with that. Maybe you know, what, I, I broke um, my because sp- I, I broke my spine in six places. I thought the thoracic parts where my ribs were, I was thinking like, that's got to be why my chest hurts, why I'm struggling breathing and stuff yeah. like that. And I never considered that anxiety would have this effect. Could do all that kind of thing. Exactly. And, you know, how can your mind have a physical effect on the body? Yeah. Never understood it, never believed it. And then it was only when I started to believe in it that I'd do my research and read up on it because I had nothing else to do anyway. Jeremy Kyle <laughs> got cut off because that guy... <laughs> committed suicide uh, bless him I know it's it's a tragic thing but he kind of did me a favour I guess yeah. but um, yeah so then I started to read into this um, the whole mindset uh, I got a book called Chasing Excellence um, by a guy called Ben Berger on he's it's to do with um, CrossFit and fitness and stuff like that yeah but it talks about um, mental resilience and how you prepare yourself and applying some of these, um, what he talks about, applying some of these methods helped me so much. Yeah. And understand like what my mind was going through at the time. Yeah. And I could relate to it. And I think that's the key thing, isn't it? Like mm. you need to be able to relate to what someone's saying before you're actually going to understand it. Yeah. Um, you can't appreciate it until, like, I know it's, there's no substitute for experience, if you know what I mean. And when you're going through it, especially with mental health, it's like a, when it happens to you, you can hear it from somebody else and kind of think you understand it or just like play lip service to it to some extent. But when you have been through it, your experience is entirely different of it and you have a different 
you come at it from a different viewpoint, right? You can kind of understand yeah, it. Yeah, 100%. You, you, you can relate to it, but it's whether or not you understand it. Mm. Um, because everyone's at different stages. So because I'd experienced the anxiety, I never understood it. So, but it wasn't until afterwards that I started looking into it and believed that this is what my problem was, yeah. that I then started to understand it. But it's making it, it's finding that way of understanding. I mean, I always say to everyone, like, especially when I go away, do courses and stuff like that, you have to dumb it down for me. Yeah. So you can wow me with all these big words. But if I don't understand it, I'm never going to take it in. Yeah, so yeah. Keep it simple. Exactly. So when you dumb it down, I'm all over it. Yeah. And then if I can relate to it, then you can accept it and you can tend to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. But it's just getting to that point. Yeah. It's like, it's language, isn't it? Like, it's how we communicate as people. Like, you you know, like, yeah, I mean, it is like speaking a foreign language sometimes. If you sit down and talk to, I recently had a conversation with an academic and I've, I went to university and at the time I was going really to consider myself academic. I've been out of there for like 20 years. And he was talking to me and I was like, I'm actually going to have to go away and can I record that and listen back to it like five times just so I can make sense of the amount of references you've made and like because it is spoken in another language yeah, but, but academic to academic that's kind of just what they do all day long right and if you're yeah, exactly. a mechanic it's the same thing it's like you know it's a different language and I suppose it's exactly the same thing right yeah exactly yeah and it's 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 making it relatable to the individual so I guess the great thing about um the podcast you'll have so many different people telling their stories that the first five won't have any kind of impact on some people that, that some of the listeners yeah but then that next one we just the, the person with them would just sit there and go oh my god it's like an epiphany and yeah then, you know they, they can just sit there and you know just relate to everything that a person's saying yeah and uh, it's, it's getting to that point and um yeah, and then being able to move on. Yeah, yeah. And how'd say from that point on, kind of thing, where um, that, so that book kind of opened the door, really, to kind of presumably your next step in life to some extent, if it was CrossFit related, and because well, what I, was your next step, kind of thing? I mean, for me, um, the next step, um, just I got discharged in two thousand and thirteen from the from the army, and then. Um, that was after, so I got married in 2011. I have, yeah. to, be, I have to be careful now because <laughs> in case in case the wife listens, I get in trouble. But, I can, um, I no, can, so, can over edit the date yeah. if you need to do that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for me, I set, I, I set myself goals. I learned how to set myself goals. My first goal was to get walking. I wanted to walk unaided down the aisle on my wedding day. Yeah. And I achieved that really quickly. Um, not because I'm an amazing person. I mean, naturally, I am pretty awesome. But yeah. <laughs> because I still have my knees, it meant I could get up and walk in a lot easier as, yeah. a, as an amputee. So I think um, it took about three months from the point of injury yeah. that I was up and walking again without crutches. Um, so that was a big tick in the box. I knew my wedding day... I wouldn't be in a wheelchair, there's no crutches, and all our photos could be more or less normal. Yeah. 
So then my next goal was if I can walk down the aisle, I need to learn how to run on running blades. Yeah. So then if I get cold feet, I can leg it the other way. (laughs) So um, that was my next goal. So then I started running and then I started getting into fitness. Um, But there was a guy who approached me. He was um, a Navy guy that worked for a charity called um, Afghan Heroes. And he came up with this concept of an injured serviceman's motorcycle race team. Yeah. So at first, um, I thought it was a great idea. And it was. It was a really good concept. And it gave me something to sink my teeth into. Because I wasn't working. I was, you know, I was in limbo. So um, I had a road bike. That was one of my other goals, was to learn to ride a motorbike again. Yeah. Um, You'd always been into bikes. That was always... Yeah, I've always been into bikes. Never raced bikes or anything. Yeah. Um, but the the consultant, the surgeon said to me, like just before I was going down to the theatre, he asked what my hobbies was. And I said, I love motorbikes. And he looked at me and said, well, you might need to consider a new hobby. All right. And... Um, you know, when I started racing, I've always told that story and it, it never sat well with me that I wouldn't be able to ride a motorbike again. Yeah, so yeah. first chance I got, I went skipping down to the local dealer, brought a motorbike, had no idea how I was going to ride it. Yeah, We stood around the bike, scratching our heads with a cup of tea in hand, yeah. just Googling different things. And then we came up with this button shifter that's on the market. So we fitted that to the bike and that's when we um, I used my road bike to go racing. Yeah. Um, so... For I think it was about three or four years, I was racing with the team, True Heroes. Yeah, and um, I invested so much of my own money and time into it at the start um, because there was no sponsors or anything. So I used my, I think um, I sunk about twenty five, thirty grand into the team just to get it up and going. Yeah, but um, I didn't mind because it was that. I was doing something. I was You're busy. learning. It's giving you purpose. Yeah, I was. I was driving up and down the country. I had purpose. Yeah. I was going to the race weekends. Um, you know, Nick. He was the, the 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 guy that helped do the first aid um, when I got blown up. He was there. Um, another guy that from my regiment that was injured on the same tour. Um, Bill. He was there. So this team was like all friends yeah and we had a laugh we was going around the banter um and just we was we was all in it together and it just made it great so um it just it gave me a sense of purpose again yeah yeah. you know that was that was that and then um you're still racing today right you're still racing now yeah i don't race with true heroes anymore um but i kind of took a, a gap gap year two years mm. um but because again i stopped racing because of unfinished business well no i stopped racing um because uh the other part of my my stories uh, yeah. to do with louis but um yeah so i kind of started racing again because i wanted if i'm going to stop i want to stop on my terms i lost yeah. my job without my control so yeah, I didn't yeah. want to you know the racing again I, if I'm going to stop it's going to be because I want your choice I don't want to do it yeah yeah. but yeah so as I started racing we had our first little boy yeah um, I didn't realise how much it took a toll on my wife um, because I was away four days 
four days of the week over 10 weekends I think yeah. she had a newborn baby so she was finding it tough yeah. plus I was going up and down the country um, doing stuff with the bikes Yeah. plus at that point I decided to you know if I was going to do a, a motorcycle engineering course because if I was going to fall off the bike and break it I'd better learn how to fix it put it back together yeah. yeah yeah so I was doing that and basically I learned to keep myself busy yeah so every time I use every time I tend to suffer with the anxiety is when I'm sitting around not doing anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's for me. I kind of I went from seven weeks, six, seven weeks at home doing nothing. Yeah. To being really busy all the time. I didn't ever want to go back to that six or seven weeks doing nothing. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's where I've learned to always keep myself busy. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so how when uh when you became a dad uh I guess there was that sort of like um yeah cuz I suppose you go into being that I don't know about you but when I when you go into being a parent you've no idea or understanding of kind of and people tell you it's like oh, it's really hard having kids kind of thing or whatever and you're like yeah I've got this it's cool it'll be pretty straightforward we'll fit the kids around our lives and it's like and then it happens and you're like oh this is actually much more intense than I realised and these kids do, it works on their terms. Yeah. But how was that, how was it sort of trying to balance that once you realised that actually being too busy was a bit too much, if you know what I mean? Um, or was it? I'm, yeah. For me, no, it wasn't too much um, because I didn't have the crying baby on, yeah. my, <laughs> on my arms all the time. But um, I mean... Our, our first boy he um he had a tongue tie so he never he didn't feed properly yeah so um hannah just struggled with um feeding and then she was um really down because she was like supposed everyone was saying like breast is best breastfeeding yeah, yeah. all this and that they used to promote it all the time so she was feeling really bad that she's failed um, with Harley because he wouldn't feed. Yeah. And then the health visitor checked his tongue and said he's got a tongue tie. So then we had it snipped. Well, no, before we had it snipped, um, we gave him a bottle. Yeah. And he, he must have done a whole bottle in the first go and then he slept for like a good few hours afterwards and it was like, holy crap. This is amazing. <laughs> this, is, this is what it's supposed to be like. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, because he, he had he had quite a traumatic birth anyway. That um, the start was just it was crazy because he as soon as from the, from when he was born he was taken away put into um, special care whatever you call yeah. it yeah um, intensive care or yeah, yeah yeah so he he basically had like a high blood toxicity and stuff so he just needed some help for the first few days yeah but obviously your first go as a parent and this child has just been whisked away um my wife she was left legs all over the place and you know she she the, we were sat there for like three hours before they even told us what was going on with, yeah. with harley so she was getting really anxious and that and then um after because they wanted to take her down to theatre to to close everything back up yeah so um 
she wouldn't have it so because she wanted to see Harley so she endured the pain and everything and um, yeah so it was just tough because all the mums on the ward was um, had their babies right next to them and she was the only one without the babies yeah and then I was kind of um, between there and sorting out the house and do that I can't remember all the stuff that was going on at the time but I couldn't be with her very much yeah so that that was that was kind of the first tough bit into parenthood um not knowing what was going on with the child and like you know this this poorly kid and everything so um yeah but then he he was re- he was released from the hospital and then like I say about the tongue tie stuff but then Hannah was just always looking after him but then when she couldn't get him to sleep, I would be the, the amazing person that would just rock up, get him to sleep straight away. Yeah. And then I guess Hannah would just, you know, she'd be calling me all sorts of names because, like, she'd been persevering for hours and hours. Yeah. I'd just pick him up and he went straight to sleep. Yeah. So, um That frustration is horrible, right? Because like well, we've all been on both sides of it. I think. It is, yeah, yeah. And especially from a mum's perspective, you know, um, you can see how um, the postnatal depression can kick in. Cause, yeah, yeah. Like, you've you've got you're looking after this child all day, and it's it's crying, screaming. It's you're trying to figure out everything, and then one person just steps in, and the kids asleep like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it screams failure. It screams all those sorts yeah, of words it's, it's, that are like that aren't true, but that's sort of just like what your brain does. Yeah, it's an emotional roller coaster, isn't it? So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so we were kind of in our own little home back then, and we um, knew that we was outgrowing it quickly. So then we moved to where where we are now. Yeah. And um, yeah, the builders were just absolute cowboys, and. Um, they, they they absolutely pulled our pants down and ripped us off and crab, crappy work and just, yeah you know there's loads of different things to it but then Hannah fell pregnant again and then just as it was coming to the end um, our second born Louis he he came along and um, everything finished and come to an end but. I think it was um year and a half in. It was about eighteen months. Yeah. Um he start the house started to fall apart again. So um we had to so had some major repair bills to get things fixed again. Yeah. So there was a, a, a massive financial struggle going on because um we had a brand new driveway fitted as part of the house refurb and within four months the whole thing was falling apart all the slabs were coming up and then we we got told it was going to cost us like well over 10 grand to get it um repaired yeah and all these other things going on so it's just we didn't know where we was going to find this money yeah but then louis um started to show signs that he was dragging a leg and then his eyes would roll back and we didn't realise these were parts of having seizures. Okay. And then um, his his hand hooked. So 
you'll see some children they've they've got like a, a hooked hand yeah and um so we were trying to get him into the, see the doctor and um the 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 chain the system you have to go through is quite slow yeah but the condition that louis had was very fast and very aggressive so yeah. things were going really quickly and um did you know what it was at this point or? no we had no clue whatsoever um you're kind of going on google which is probably one of the worst things you can do but then google was right yeah and um, it turns out that he had a, a condition called Lee's disease, okay. uh, which is a mitochondrial disease. And it affects um, young babies. Yeah. And um, it's a very aggressive condition, which is not treatable. Yeah. So once um, we started getting in to see a consultant, at the hospital, um, we kind of said like he's like he's lost the spark in his eyes. You know he he was a happy kid. He was um, he was walk he was crawling just about walking. So he was he'd take a couple of steps and stumble. Yeah, he would say a few words, and then that was about it. But he was a happy kid, and he went from that to just a, a limp body. You know, he had no control of his functions or anything. We had to do everything for him. Yeah. Um, suppositories, medications. He had feeding tubes. Like, he literally lost all his um, functions. Yeah. Over the course of uh, about six months. So it was very quick, very yeah. aggressive. And we had to deal with, like, the consultant telling us that chances are, you know, his condition was terminal. Yeah. So that was the first kind of real shock that we had to deal with and then um, one day well the doctor said to us like to be honest it's a, a, a common cold is is what's going to kill him right. and and they were right you know there was um, just after his second birthday he caught cold and but I mean to be honest like what we were doing we me and Hannah, right, to look after Louis, Hannah would look after Harley and take him to all the clubs, the play dates and everything. Yeah. And I stayed home and looked after Louis. Yeah. Uh, because it because of my prosthetics and stuff like that, taking Harley to all the kids' play areas, naturally I drew a lot of attention. Yeah. And I always say it never bothers me, but... You know, it does. I've had kids come up to me. There was one kid, he was in a garden centre and he came right up to me and his parents were at the other end of this, like, restaurant. Yeah. And he's shouting, he's like, Mom, Mom, look at this man's legs. So I leant over to him and I said to him, I was like, yeah, I was a naughty boy like you. And then the monsters under the bed came and ate my feet. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) but it's just things like that it kind of sticks with you so then I was like yeah. well, I, I don't like going to soft play I don't go like going to all these places or I wear trousers yeah. I, I don't I live in shorts you see because it's easier to manage my prosthetics <laughs> yeah but um, yeah so it was easier for Hannah to give Harley the life because we didn't want him to miss out just because Louis was so poorly I yeah mean, we, we still didn't really know the extent of his condition at this point so Hannah was off out with him 
I would stay home with Louis, look after him, do whatever I needed to do. And then we'd take it in turns. Um, at night, one of us, because he has seizures, he would wake up and he would scream. Yeah. And then it's, it's not, I mean, you'd never forget the screams that a two-year-old makes when he's in pain. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, we would take it in turns. Um, I would sleep with him one night and then Hannah would sleep in the spare bed with, with Harley. Yeah. And then we'd swap over. So it kind of, we, we got into a routine and as much as I'd say it was good and slick, it was, it was the worst thing ever just because of the situation we was in at the time. Yeah. Um, we didn't, because of where my family is, um, they live a long, uh, you know, a good distance away. Yeah. I can, we didn't have help from them. And it was similar with um, Hannah's parents. Yeah. You know, so our support network was, was no good. It was just us. We were on our own. Yeah. That's the way that we saw it. But then we never wanted to ask for help anyway. Yeah. You know, it was this this was us. We we could do it together sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one night Hannah came running into my room, woke me up and uh, said that Louis breathing is funny. So... I went. I got up, went in, and yeah, lo and behold, he was really struggling, gasping for air. So yeah. Hannah, it was easier for her to whip him up, take him down to the hospital, and um, they said that he, he needs to be ventilated straight away. So right. um, they put him on a ventilator, and that's they took him from Worthing up to London, um, St George's Hospital. Yeah, and uh, I stayed up there from start to finish uh, because Hannah did the time before because it wasn't the first trip up to that hospital yeah so I said that I would stay up there this time but then I kind of thought in my head that he'll be coming home yeah in a few days but um yeah it was it was it was crazy because uh, again you know Nick came up sat with me and yeah. I think it was the the following day um they tried to take him off the ventilator to see if he was going to breathe on his own because they said that if he wasn't going to breathe on his own, then we had started to have to look into turning the ventilator off and letting him slip away. Yeah. But they they moved him from bed bays, but as soon as they turned off the ventilator to move him, he had a, a pulmonary edema, so his, his lungs started filling up with water and stuff. Right. And... Um, yeah, it just all kicked off. All hell broke loose. Hannah was on her way up anyway. But then when she got there, you know, I explained to her everything that was going on. Yeah. And then the doctors came in and we saw, we saw, we went in to see him. And it was probably the the worst thing because you, you saw everything that was going on at the time. There was doctors, nurses, like doing all sorts to, to try and make him more comfortable. Yeah. But then you could see on the machine, um, his his heartbeat heartbeat was at like two hundred and fifty beats per minute, and right. you know the normal your maximum heart rate is two twenty. Yeah, yeah. So you know it was well over, and um, just everything just it was chaos. So um, me and Hannah went away, and uh, we we decided that we didn't want to see him suffer anymore. Yeah. And that's when we went back and we, we said that, you know, we're going to turn the life support off. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we had to deal with that. And 
you know, Hannah held him in her arms as it all got wound down and we saw him slip away. Yeah. And uh, as a parent, that's the hardest thing, you know, to see, to say goodbye to your child. Yeah, yeah. That's the worst. I think it's the worst thing that can happen to anyone. Yeah, 100%. Any human, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't really, yeah, it just doesn't bear thinking about, does it? And it's sort of, I suppose, when they're born and they get through those early stages, you sort of think, you know, initially everyone gives you the impression that, and that is, I suppose, that first 12 months is kind of, you know, making sure everything's okay, they're developing okay, is everything moving okay, and then for it to happen that soon after. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean... Just you stepping in, talking there. I mean, as I was talking away, it just opens all the emotions back up, and you remember and stuff. So yeah, it's it's crazy. And uh, when when you're dealing with that loss, uh, it's like we was talking before we started. Yeah, you know, it's like this massive hole, and it never gets any smaller. It's always there. Yeah you just tend to allow life back in and um, you know to begin with you always feel bad that that you've just laughed at something yeah and you're like oh my god I shouldn't be laughing I should I should be devastated I need to go back to crying I need to go back to being miserable yeah but it's not the case it's, it's you need to let the life back in so then you can actually move on yeah and it's it's not that you're forgetting a person you know, um, I quite often, not long after, well, after the throughout the first months of when he he died, I, f- I found myself just you know sitting on his bed, cuddling his ashes and stuff like that. Yeah. And then just over time, you know, you you, you think to yourself, "Am I a bad person because I'm not grieving like I was?" Yeah. Um, I mean. I was lucky, or both me and my wife were lucky, that we had Harley, our firstborn. Yeah. Because he he takes after me in the sense that he uses humour and yeah. he picks up on that. And he's, he's he was a proper clown. Yeah. But it was allowing that laughter back in that allowed us to to deal with grief. We when we was on our own in the evenings and stuff like that, we'd always, you know, shed a tear, you know, sit on the sofa, just, yeah. you know, whatever. But in the daytime, it just allowed us to adjust our focus slightly towards yeah. Harley and then, you know, use that, that laughter and then start, you know, slowly bringing life back. Yeah. I went back to my old um, safety net of, being busy yeah so straight away I kind of flooded myself um that's when I started to train as a personal trainer yeah um I got a job so I was PT and stuff like that and I think that's how I've always got through things I just immerse myself with stuff and then move you know not move on but you tend to move on find your way through (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah Yeah, find I mean, a way of looking forward, kind of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just because I was working, I was just thinking about what I need to be doing. Um, but we kind of both me and my wife made a pact that um, we 
we need to make sure we're happy in whatever we're doing because you know Louis not had the chance to live a life mm. so what we need to do is make sure we live our lives the best way that we can yeah so for that is is about being happy yeah because if you're not happy then what have you got yeah just a whole load of shit going on around you yeah so um we've We've tried to make sure that we uphold this, yeah. but again, you kind of we know, we realise that we've kind of got stuck in a rut and we haven't actually been upholding what we said because you know life takes over, things yeah, happen, it gets everything changes. So it wasn't that long ago that we actually realised and we started talking about it and we're like, look, we need to change all this. So we we've put our house up on the market because um, we don't need the house um, I mean it's, it's, it's a lovely house it's, it's a what do you call it a chocolate box house or whatever it is it yeah, looks yeah. absolutely amazing but there's we don't need it so what we want is to um, find a smaller house um, somewhere that <clears throat> doesn't cost us an absolute fortune to live and then where we can have the extra money you know, start to travel, start to see the world, start to do things. Yeah. And uh, I think that's absolutely key. Uh, but then after we, after Louis passed and that, um, we started, we went through the adoption process because we wanted Harley to have another sibling. Yeah. And that was, that was a lot of hard work in itself. Yeah. Um, these social services were so in depth, so intrusive, um, it was almost like uh, if we didn't do what they asked us to do, then it was almost like we was being judged on it and stuff yeah. like that. And it was just, we had to do everything they wanted us to do. But if we wanted to do things for ourselves, then it always changed things. Because I, I signed up to do the Invictus Games over in Australia yeah. as we was doing the adoption process. And they said they, they had to pause the whole process whilst I go away and do the games. Right. we can't focus solely on the adoption. Yeah. So it was like loads of different things like that. But, um, so that went on for, for quite a while and then we got matched with, um, with our daughter. And we said we didn't want any children under 18 months. Yeah. And we got matched with a 10 month old. <laughs> so, uh, to say that she was hard work was an understatement. Yeah. And, um, we went from this happy little family household into this chaotic household with this little girl. Yeah. We, we keep reminding ourselves why we set out to do it. But I yeah. think, to be honest, it's the hardest thing we've done. Yeah. Other than lo losing our son. But, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy difficult. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's even rocked us as a, as a, couple in our relationship yeah so um i suppose conventionally when you have children you have all that time you have the pregnancy to go through so you have time to prepare which both physically and mentally presumably prepares you for what you're going to go through then when they arrive you've kind of got a um you're starting from point zero aren't you in terms of like you know you know everybody gives you guidance on what happens but i yeah. suppose picking it up well the trouble is though you've you've taken on a child that you have no love for yeah so you know um with with our son um like hannah particularly 
she had nine months carrying him yeah from the birth and then all the way forward so she's had all this emotional attachment yeah chemicals and hormones and everything else yeah Yeah. like no other and all that but um with Lily May she she came in she didn't sleep she you know she was just hard work she has been hard work from the word go yeah and um, when you're trying to bond with a, with, with a child, it's yeah. like it, it just doesn't happen. You end up resenting the child. And yeah. again, this is where like depression and stuff, <clears throat> like, it's so easy to, to come in because you're like, I've failed. Why do I not love this child? Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. And um, for me, I haven't bonded with this child. Yeah. And, you know, we're supposed to be the parents. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's just been such a real struggle yeah um that you know we, we've sought help and you know everything's don't get me wrong everything's like getting brighter now but yeah to get to this point it's just it's been pretty colossal yeah crazy <laughs> yeah I, I mean to to say you the thoughts that go through your mind and to where you're at, that you failed as a person, you failed as a parent, you failed um, a marriage, you know, you failed everything. Yeah. And you go through all of it. And then, you you know, you, you just think the worst of everything. Yeah. And then you start to question, like, why am I thinking this? Am I that sort of bad person? Yeah. And stuff like that. And um you start reading articles and stuff and especially with the adoption process like so many relationships fail through because of adoption yeah the child not bonding with the parents and stuff like that yeah and you're thinking holy crap yeah you know what have we done yeah yeah but um i think it's when again when you can see the cracks you can actually do something about it yeah yeah and you know that's what we've actually done is that we've started to do something about it. Yeah. And we're now sort of coming out the other end. So, um, you know, for for the adversities, overcoming <laughs> and stuff like that, it's not a crazy Christ. Yeah. I don't think there's not much more. The world could throw. The at world you. can throw at me. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's really going to test me. So. Uh, yeah. And how old's Lily May and Harvey now? Uh, Harley, Harley is sorry. eight, yeah, and um, the devil child is two, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, she's starting to develop a character and stuff. She's starting to become more independent, so it is getting easier. Yeah, but it's just getting to that point from ten months old to two years old. It's just you know, it's been real rough. Yeah, yeah. Ride, but um, how was it with um, with Harley in terms of? Um, when when it happened with Louis, how was it kind of how old was he when that happened kind of thing and how did you manage that as parents kind of thing how did you find that he was uh, I think he was about four years old um, he didn't really know what was going on yeah and we didn't really say too much at the time yeah um we we tried to keep him distance from it all. Yeah. Um, but obviously one day, Louis went up to the hospital and then never came back. Yeah. Um, we tried to we we was brutally honest with him 
and it was it was it was I don't know if it was a good thing or not but he was at um, nursery he was, he was going to nursery at the time and they used to do this thing called beach school right so living down on the coast they'd take the kids down to the beach and then just you know see what they see what they can find on yeah. the beach <laughs> so um, but he found this crab shell or it was a, a dead crab yeah that he called Mr. Snippy but um, the nursery explained to him about the death and what happened to him. Yeah. So because of that, it kind of made it easier explaining to him what happened to his brother. But we were trying so hard to explain what happened. He's like, oh, like Mr. Snippy. And you're like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, like, like the crab. Yeah. And he's like, oh, right, okay. And you could see him processing it. And, you know, he was upset, but I don't think he understood the extent of what had happened yeah but um, yeah he took it on really well all things considered yeah well, it's that language thing we were talking about earlier right it's sort of yeah. like how do you communicate a message that to an adult is way more complex but to a child is actually quite um, black and white in terms yeah, of exactly. what's happened I think what didn't really help was um, friends of his and parents, whatever they, the parents of his friends would turn around and say, "Right, Harley's little brother Louis's gone to heaven. He's gone up to the clouds in the sky. He's gone to this. He's gone to that." And then these kids would come in and talk to Harley and say, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm really sorry. Your your brother's in the clouds in the sky." So then he's coming home and he's like, "Louis's not What's dead. That? He's in the clouds in the sky." Yeah. And then you kind of explaining to him. I know I can appreciate everyone has their own belief. Yeah. But I'm one of these people that's, you know, I'm sorry, but the body is biomechanical. Yeah. You know, you, you, your soul doesn't leave your body and go up to the clouds. As yeah. much as I'd love to believe that. Yeah. I, I, it just doesn't happen. So yeah. I was kind of brutal with Harley because I don't want to try and jazz it up. Yeah. To something that it's not. Yeah, and I suppose to some extent as he gets older, it'll be the kind of thing, it sounds like the kind of thing that you have to keep revisiting from what you're experiencing and what you're describing yeah. there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if he turns, if it turns out that he decides to believe in God or whatever he wants to believe in, that's entirely up to him. Yeah. You know, he can think about what he wants. Yeah. But um, until he gets to that stage, you know, he just... Yeah, yeah, the truth. as it is, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean... Yeah, if we're talking adversity, I'd say that's probably about as um, complicated <laughs> as it gets for anyone. Um, I like. I'm really grateful for your honesty and sharing your story. And um, it's obviously tragic, but I hope at least from this podcast, someone listening might be able to take something away from it. And I'm, you know, I know that there will be people who take something away from it. So I'm really grateful for the time with that. No worries. Um, thank you very much for your time and uh, thanks to you all for listening and please join us again for next week on the podcast and there we have it that's it for this week's Born Human podcast an exceptionally difficult and challenging subject this week, which I'm immensely grateful to Murray and to his family for sharing with us. 
I can't even begin to imagine what it must be like to go through what they've been through. But I am also in awe of the way they face the adversity they have. For Murray, in terms of how he coped with losing his legs and choosing not to let that beat him in life and to be the best version of himself he could be from that point on, riding superbikes, crossfit and PT, all those kind of good things. And then in losing their son as a family to kind of navigate your way through that, but to naturally, I guess, want to honour his life knowing that he didn't have the life that you would have hoped for him and that they would have wanted for him. And I'm sure it's not easy on a day-to-day basis for anyone who's been through such things. but we all have choice in terms of how we handle that. And their choice was to be positive, to take a step forward, to not let these terrible things ruin the rest of their life because they do still have lives ahead of them. So I'm super grateful to Murray and to his family for allowing us to share their story and to allow us to see what it's like to go through what they've been through. Thank you for joining us this week and I hope you're able to take something away from this as much as I am. Please share, subscribe, like, do all that good stuff and we'll see you at the next Born Human podcast.